Today we are reading Hebrews 7, 20 through 28, and that's on page 583 in the Blue Bibles. And I'd just like to remind you that you can take a Blue Bible home. If you need one, they're our gift to you. And that is Hebrews 7, 20 through 28, page 583. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Thus says God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are our great high priest. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but you have been tested, you've been tempted in every point just like we are, yet never, ever sinned. So, God, we thank you for your great sympathy for us, Lord God. We thank you that the, that the, the sacrifice that you, Jesus, offered before the Father was enough, that it was a once-for-all sacrifice that, that washed us of all sin as we believe in you. And it was a, it was a sacrifice that, that eternally established you as the one who makes intercession for us. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear these words, that we would grow by them, Lord, that we would become uh, people who are transformed in the light of your word more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help me today as I as I preach this word, Lord, that I would do so in a way that would uh, have no uh, other effect than to bring glory to your name and to draw your people to Christ. And so we thank you for that. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you have your Bibles, um, keep that place that Danae read to us in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 open, because I'm going to be referring back and forth uh, to that. Now, many of you know uh, that we have been um, in the most interrupted series in the history of mankind. I started several weeks ago, almost a couple months ago now, I think. I started a series on the roles of the prophet, priest, and king in the scripture. And um, we have gotten through the prophet. We talked about what an Old Testament prophet was, and then we talked about how Christ fulfilled perfectly the role of the Old Testament prophet. And when I say fulfilled, what I mean was the point was never Isaiah and Abraham and people like that. The point was always Jesus, and those guys were foreshadowing Jesus. Amen? It wasn't the other way around. Jesus didn't come in the last line of those guys. He actually was the whole point all the time. 
And so we, we've done this, and um, and today, a couple weeks ago, uh, last uh, one of the last time, well, the last time I was here preaching in person before our little COVID uh, good times, um, the uh, uh, I, I talked about the Old Testament Levitical or Aaronic priests and that priesthood and how that worked. And and what just like we did with the prophets, today I want to take that a step further. And I would like to examine with you how Jesus fulfills the priesthood. I want to talk about how Jesus fulfills the priesthood and in doing so he relegates Old Testament priests, just like he did with the prophets, to merely a shadow of the reality that we find in Jesus. Now, the passage that we read this morning is a sampling. It's just kind of like this little, uh, you know, snapshot of one of the principal themes in the book of Hebrews. And that theme is this, that Jesus Christ is our high priest and he replaces all the other priests by proving them to be ineffective for our salvation, making them absolutely unnecessary and obsolete. You do not need a priest anymore outside of Jesus. Help me out here. Jesus is the priest. He is the only priest. He's the only one you need. And Hebrews does this. The writer of Hebrews does this in a really interesting way. The way he points to Jesus. He emphasizes this point by, by looking to a priest in the Old Testament. Uh, but, but the priest that he looks to specifically predates Moses. He predates Aaron. He predates the law. He predates the sacrifices. He predates the tabernacle. He predates the Levitical priesthood. And this priest was a man named Melchizedek. Um, now Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He has a very, very, very brief history, just a handful of verses, and you find those in Genesis 14. Now, here's the, here's the background for the story of where Melchizedek comes in. Four kings have come together and they've attacked the city of Sodom and they have totally sacked the city of Sodom and they've taken Abram's nephew Lot, Abram who would become Abraham, they take his nephew Lot and um, so uh, they, they take him captive and he's, he's you know been uh, taken by them and so Abram builds an army and he marches out, he defeats all of those kings with the help of God and he delivers the people and all of their possessions from captivity. So he wins an incredible victory with the help of the Lord. And and that's where the story picks up. Genesis 14, verse 17. Here's what we read. It says, after his return, this is Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom uh, went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Now listen, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. The, uh, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, what I want you to understand is, that is about everything we know about Melchizedek. That's it. In the entire Bible, as far as background, biographical information, that's all we got. So, you know, this is the history. 
But the writer of Hebrews, interestingly, sees in him a glorious typology of the priesthood of Christ. And let me, let me, let's examine together how that happens. So uh, where he sees this. Now, there's a few things I want you to notice. First of all, notice that the, the scripture here in Genesis calls Melchizedek the king of Salem. And that literally translates to the king of peace. What does that make you think of when you hear that? Isaiah, if you look in Isaiah chapter 9, a scripture that we usually go to only around Christmas time, it prophetically tells us that one day, this is 600 years before the birth of Christ, it tells us that one day a child will be born and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and watch this, the Prince of Peace. So you see this real connection between uh, Melchizedek, the king of peace, and then Jesus called the, the prince of peace. But more than that, Melchizedek's name in Hebrew means the king of righteousness. And Jesus' righteousness, we just sang about it several times in several songs, Jesus' righteousness, not our works or our merit, is the centerpiece of our salvation. And, and Jesus' righteousness, unlike your righteousness, unlike my righteousness, is without the, is without the smallest stain. By Jesus' substitutionary death, by standing in our place, the King of Righteousness grants us, you and I, think about that, all of the merit of His perfect righteousness if we just believe. What that means is what I just said, that mouthful I just said is this. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your reputation is, no matter what your past history looks like, when you come to the place where you say, I believe Jesus is enough for me, that He is my Savior, then, then the King of Righteousness takes all of the, the righteousness that He has and gives it to you as if it were your very own. Amazing. Furthermore, Salem, where Melchizedek dwelt, would later be renamed to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And that means the city of peace. That's, that's significant. Because Jerusalem, the city of peace, was where God would choose to dwell in a temple several generations later in the midst of his people. But guess what? Now... God has made peace, He's made shalom, Salem, with us. And now He dwells where He has made peace, He dwells within us. Now you are the dwelling place of God Almighty. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, He was the priest of God Most High. This is really cool. Because I told you, it would be several generations before the, the children of Israel found themselves at Mount Sinai and the law would be given and all these instructions for how the priesthood was to work would be given. Several generations still yet to pass before that happened. And so this means that this man, Melchizedek, who comes out to meet Abram, was, uh, was a priest before there was priests. He was, he was the one who represented God to man. And he mediated between the Creator and His creation. And this matters because Christ Jesus is the one who perfectly represents God to humanity. If you want to see what God is like, if you want to know what God thinks, if you want to understand God's heart towards you, look at Jesus. 
That's what Jesus does. He represents God to humanity. And Paul says, it's so significant that Paul says that in Christ, all of the fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwells in Jesus in bodily form. That's how much full of God Jesus is. And Christ also is a mediator. He mediates between God and humanity by his sacrificial death and resurrection. In fact, so much so that John, in his epistles, calls Jesus our advocate. You know what advocate is? It's a lawyer. I don't know if you've ever been in trouble, if anybody's ever sued you, or or you had to take somebody to court. You don't want to do that without a lawyer. You don't want to represent yourself before the court. I am telling you, you do not want to represent yourself before God's court. You don't want to stand there before the bar of God trying to make a defense for yourself. Because God will throw the book at you. But when Jesus is your advocate, when Jesus is the lawyer on the case, he says, every crime that they've done, Everything that they've done to offend your holiness is paid for. The debt is already settled. And all he does is show his hands and his feet to prove that you are now innocent. You won't, don't want to be represented by yourself. And some of you here, that's important. Some of you are desperately trying to represent yourself before God by telling him you're not as bad as that guy or this girl. But, but don't represent yourself alone before God. Have an advocate. And there's only one worth having. And his name is Jesus. The Bible tells us next that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to refresh Abraham after the battle and to celebrate the victory. And the bread and wine offered by this priest should significantly remind us of the table where we gather every Sunday. And we share bread and and the cup in fellowship, and we do it to be refreshed spiritually, and we do it to be reminded of our Lord's victory over sin and death. Next, Melchizedek also blessed Abram. Now you might have to think about this one for a little bit, so really tune in. Uh, uh, Hebrews goes into more explanation about the significance of this. But it says that Melchizedek blessed Abram, and, and though Abram, like I said, he'd be Abraham soon, though Abram was to be the father of the Jews, the father of the people of God, he was blessed by this priest. Now the writer of Hebrews makes two points about this important action of Melchizedek blessing Abram. First, Abram was the great-grandfather of Levi. Now you may not understand the significance of that, but, but all the priests of Israel came through the tribe of Levi. And, and so uh, by bestowing blessing on Abram, Melchizedek proves himself to be superior to the one he blesses. Let me explain what I mean by that. Can a poor man... Bless a rich man with wealth. Pretend. I I use Bill Gates in sermon illustrations a lot, but let's assume that Bill Gates and I were friends. And if I ever said, hey, Bill, I really want to bless you. I'm going to give you a check for 50 bucks. Would that be in any way, shape, or form a blessing to Bill Gates? Probably be more of a trouble because he'd have to take my check to the bank and mess with it. And he'd probably just wad it up or light his cigar with it or whatever. I don't know what what Bill Gates does with a $50 check. but, But... A poor man cannot bless a rich man with wealth. An an injured man 
Laying on the operating table does not give healing to the wise surgeon. So in receiving blessing, Abram obtains a benefit from someone greater and someone more generous than himself. As great as Abram would become, as great as Abraham would be, as the father of the people of God, someone greater than him was doling out the blessings. And this is what Hebrew says. It says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Secondly, in grateful acknowledgement, Abram pays a love offering of 10% of his, the spoils of this war to Melchizedek. And, and though the people of God would spring from Abram's DNA, yet he pays tithes to someone outside of himself, outside of the covenant of the law, outside of the Levitical priesthood. And all of these points that I've just made become very important when we realize that Melchizedek is not mentioned again in Scripture until we come all the way to Psalm 110. Several generations later, and David makes a reference to him again. And this time, when David speaks of Melchizedek, he's actually making a reference prophetically. He's pointing forward to the Messiah that would come, who we now know as Jesus. And this is what he says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord... God the Father, speaking to the Messiah, says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have to go back to Genesis 14 like we just did and figure out what does it mean to be after the order of Melchizedek. See, what he's saying is the Messiah is going to be a priest, but not at all like the Levitical priests that the people of David's time understood. It's going to be a different kind of priest. First and foremost... Priests did not come from Jesus' tribe. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. And, 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 but this, this prophecy, this, this swearing by God, this oath says, You are my priest forever. Nothing's going to change that. I have sworn I will not change my mind. This oath by God to Jesus that he would forever be God's appointed priest or his mediator is what makes Jesus entirely different from the others, starting back where we started with Danae in verse 20 of chapter 7, it says, It was not without an oath. For those who were formerly, who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. See, the priests in the tabernacle, or the ones that served at the temple, became priests by an inherited right. If you were of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, when you were born, if you were the firstborn, ta-da, you were a priest. Nothing to it. They were priests because they were born in Aaron's line. And because of this, because of this relatively simple process to become a priest, if you read through your scripture, you have good priests. And you have faithful priests. But you also have some corrupt priests. You have some evil priests. But see, Jesus is a priest forever, not because he was born of the flesh into it, but because God appointed him with an oath. And it guarantees, that oath guarantees his continuing ministry God will not 
change his mind. Jesus is your faithful priest forever. His term will not expire. And this means, in case that... In case the magnitude of that is completely lost on you, let me help. This means that as long as God lives, as long as God is a God of truth, Jesus will not cease to intercede for mercy on behalf of his people. It will never cease to be. As long as God lives and reigns, the blood of Christ will be enough to cleanse the souls of those who believe. You will not run out of mercy as long as Jesus lives. As long as God lives, death cannot grasp you in its fearsome claws. Can't happen. Because your priest ever lives to make intercession for you. God has guaranteed all of this with an oath. And when he makes an oath, he's guaranteeing it by his reputation of holiness, by his reputation of truth, by his reputation of faithfulness. Can you see with me that God has a lot of stake, a lot at stake in the continuing ministry of Jesus? Because he's sworn by himself that Jesus would be your priest forever. And then very simply, the writer of Hebrews says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Raise your hand if you'd rather have the old covenant than the new covenant. Don't see any hands going up. You wouldn't like to come to church every Sunday and bring a bunch of bulls and goats. The carpet cleaning alone would just be incredibly expensive. But no one wants to go back to that who has truly tasted the goodness of the Lord Jesus who has made a once and for all sacrifice for us. So Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. If you, if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah, you would find in his prophecy, he contains indictments against the priests of his day. In this prophecy, he calls them shepherds. Um, the, the, is the word he chooses to, to illustrate the priesthood in Israel at this day. And he, he indicts them because they would abuse and exploit the priests or the sheep for their own advantage. What he's saying is that the sheep were starving spiritually, while the priests were fat and happy and well taken care of. But what the writer of Hebrews wants you to know, that in Christ, those days are over. You don't have a priest anymore who can abuse you. You don't have a priest any longer who can exploit you. You have a priest who's been appointed by the oath of God. Those days are over. And now, this is how Jesus says it. When, when Jeremiah is talking about priests who take care of them at the expense of the sheep, this is how Jesus speaks of it. He says, For even the Son of Man Himself came not to be served, but to serve. His point was to give. Never to take anything for His own advantage, but to give as our faithful high priest. And to give His life, His very life, as a ransom for many. Because Jesus is our high priest, we are not the victims of bad shepherding. And we have that promise in John 10 where he calls himself, he says, I am the good shepherd. How tragic is it then? If Jesus is the good shepherd and we have a promise never to be any longer abused or exploited by the priest that God has sworn an oath to give us. If that's true, how tragic is it when we question the Lord's steadfast love for us? And we've all done it. We've all done it. 
The Bible tells us, we even sang these words in a song today, the Bible tells us that God loves us so much that He's literally engraved us into the palms of His hands. In another place it says that He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In another place it says that He is an ever-present help in time of need. When the world, when your government, when your job, when your family, when even your church are slipping and spinning out of control, Jesus is an anchor for your souls. There may be many things and many more on which you cannot rely. But Jesus remains steadfast. Jesus isn't going anywhere. So don't let your fears and your doubts and your troubles become a breeding ground for accusations to form against Christ's love for you. He is your priest forever. And in His steadfast love, He will never leave you or forsake you. But this was not the case with the Levitical priests. It wasn't just their corruption that made them ineffective, their their self-serving exploitation. It was also their mortality. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, in those days... The very best of priests would come and go, they would live, they would serve, they would die, and then they'd be replaced by the next guy who may or may not be as good as the last one. Have you ever had a great leader in your life, an influential person who was, for one reason or another, taken away from you? Maybe it was a pastor at a church that you really loved that was sent on to the next assignment. Or maybe a teacher that really made an impact in your life and you moved on to the next class and so you're separated from them. Well, even as hard as those things are, death is the ultimate separator. If you've ever lost any kind of loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a child, you know how true that is. But Christ's priesthood is not only guaranteed by God's oath... He is my priest forever, but it's guaranteed by his continuing life. See, Jesus has already died. He defeated death in human flesh, and then he was raised again on the third day as we sang so gloriously this morning. And he has purchased everlasting life for all of us who believe. Death is not an issue for you any longer if you believe in Jesus Christ. Let the world do what it will. Let COVID do what it will. Death can't touch me because my faith is in Jesus Christ. And the way this applies to a message about the priesthood of God is this, or the priesthood of Christ is this, is that Jesus cannot be separated from us as our priest, and we cannot be separated from him as his people. And that's important because a lot of times we see is like, you know, I'm going to serve Jesus till I die. No, no, no. No. If you're a believer, you're going to serve Jesus forever. You're going to serve Jesus forever and ever and ever because the, the connection you have with your faithful priest who is always waiting for you is never going to end. Death means nothing 
to this relationship. And the implications of this are completely staggering. Now, everybody, I know you're kind of in listen to sermon mode. I, I, I hope I'm not losing you, but if I am, come back in for just a second. Plug back in for just a second, because I want you to hear this verse about the implications of everything we've said so far, and I want you to really hear it. You know what I mean? Where you're not just, oh, I've heard that verse before, I'm just going to kind of, I want you to really hear it. Listen to each word of this. Consequently, now this is consequently, because of all the stuff we've already said, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now think. Be still for just a minute and think about that. I want you to mentally pause and specifically consider the words for a moment. Save to the uttermost. Think about it. What does that mean to you? Save to the uttermost. I want you to ask yourself, as you consider the word, save to the uttermost, this may seem like an odd question for you, especially if you grew up in church, but I want you to ask yourself this question, honestly, where or how do I need to be saved? Where is my salvation incomplete? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm not talking about, you know... Maybe you did something naughty this week and you got to get saved again. I'm talking about something much bigger than that. See, some of us, from being over-evangelicalized, have a very limited view of salvation. Salvation for us is a, I talk about this a lot, but it's a box that we check off through some motion, some prayer, some walking down an aisle, some raising a hand, whatever. It's a box we check off. That, that tells us, it assures us that as long as we don't have to go to hell, we have nothing to worry about. And that is not biblical salvation. See, that, that's salvation on a very limited level. It talks about something that, it's, it's kind of like life insurance. Oh, I paid for my insurance at the end of my life, so I don't have to worry about anything now. But see, what the Bible talks about, when it talks about salvation, when it uses other alternate words like deliverance, it's talking about being delivered from fear. Can you sit before me today and say, man, I have been completely delivered from fear? I'm not asking for a response. I want you to ask your heart. I've been delivered. I've been saved to the uttermost from fear. I've been saved from despair. I've been saved from depression. Some of you realize how unsaved from depression you were on election day. I've been saved from injustice. I've been saved from sickness. I've been saved from doubt and from Poverty, not to mention a whole slew of sin, iniquity, and transgression of all shapes and sizes. So my question to you this morning is where do you need to be saved? I'm not appealing to the drunkard that might have rolled in here or the adulterer that might have slipped in through the cracks. I'm talking to you guys who believe in Jesus. Where do you need to be saved? To the uttermost. 
Where do you need the salvation of God like kneading yeast into dough to be spread out to the outer reaches of your life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your habits? Where does salvation need to reach in you this morning? So I want to encourage you. When it says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, we have before us a promise, an explosive dynamite promise of Jesus, that Jesus' unending life is a guarantee that we can be saved. Not just on an abstract spiritual surface level where we float up to heaven when we die, but right here, right now, and in the face of the uttermost of impossibility, we can be saved. My follow-up question to you is, do you dare believe this? Do you dare believe this? Do you believe that by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, what is broken in you can be fixed? Do you believe sitting there with pain that I may never know about that He can redeem your childhood? That He can stabilize your emotions? That He can give you the power to release the, the, the chains of your past? That He can help you to, to be free and break and conquer nasty habits? That He can help you and save you so that your faith increases? So that He can make you more loving and forgiving? That He can give peace to your troubled heart? Where do you need to be saved and do you believe, do you dare believe that Jesus can and will save you this morning just like you believed when you gave your heart to Him? Can you believe it? These are serious questions. And we all must consider them seriously. Well, the sad thing about American evangelicalism is that we, most of us have been trained to settle for a safe, religious, predictable, sterile experience instead of throwing ourselves into the loving care of our merciful high priest who is mighty to save us. And I do not want to come to the end of my life, no matter where it, when it is, only to realize how much grace was available for my great need and how little I cried out for it. I want everything that Jesus paid for, for me. All of it. Charles Spurgeon, I always tell you every time I quote him, he's my hero. And he said this, he says, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Isn't that great? He next describes, the writer of Hebrews that is, next describes Jesus Christ with wonderful adjectives, beautiful adjectives. And he says it was fitting for Christ to be like this for us. This is what he says. He says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Why, you have to ask yourself when you read this, would such a high priest be fitting for us? Well... Because as Jesus is holy, I don't know if you've noticed, we are unholy. Jesus was innocent, I cannot boast of the same thing, I am guilty. 
As Jesus was unstained, I am thoroughly defiled. Is this ringing true with anybody else? Yeah, it's hard to admit in church, right? As Jesus was separated from sinners, we are born of, attracted to, victimized by, and constantly victimizing other sinners. Sinners are just part of our reality. And in our unregenerate state, we're not exalted above the heavens. We are condemned to judgment in hell. So it's fitting for us to have a high priest like him because he is nothing like us at all except in the flesh he took on himself to redeem us out of his own mercy. It's important if you have a high priest that the high priest does not look like, act like, or think like you. Would you agree with that? It would be terrible. My car... This afternoon starts making a noise, take it to a mechanic in the morning, and I take it to a mechanic who knows as much about cars as I do. I don't think anybody in the world knows as little about cars as I do. But that would be stupid, wouldn't it? If I find that I have a cancerous tumor in my body, I am not going to seek out the first doctor I find who dropped out of middle school. I want somebody who knows what they're doing, right? And so I do not want to go to consult a priest. I don't want a priest to mediate between the Father and myself who is just as wicked and depraved as I am. I need someone holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's the kind of high priest I need. And this was the problem with the old priesthood. They were just like us because they were us. And so the writer of Hebrews says Christ has no, has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this, he, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The old priests had to get over the hurdle of their own sins first before they could do anything about yours or mine. But not so with Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. As an innocent man, and yet on that cross, he offered a fully effective sacrifice for all time and for everyone who would put their trust in him. My three favorite words to describe the sacrifice of Jesus are actually repeated four times in the book of Hebrews. And those three words are once for all. Aren't those great words? So when I blow it, and I do... Hope I'm not disappointing anybody. But when I blow it, I don't say, oh man, now Jesus has to get back up on the cross. He has to get nailed to the cross again. And oh man, what if I mess up tomorrow? Man, Jesus is going to get sick of getting crucified because I'm going to mess up a lot. And I know all my friends are messing up. No, 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 no. Jesus gave the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Once for all. What a wonderful promise that is. These words tell me that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. And it was complete. And there's nothing ever to be added to it. He's not going back to make it. This is what the blasphemy of the Mass is in the Catholic Church. It's that every time that Mass is offered, Jesus is offered afresh. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus will not be crucified again. He will not be put to a public shame again. What he has done, he's done for all who believe in him once and for all. 
The fact of our great high priest should inspire real worship when we consider it. Because Jesus has superseded by far anything that the law provided through the Old Testament priesthood. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law gave us men who were both mortal and sinful, but God's sworn oath said, You are a priest forever. And by that word, he appoints a faithful son. When the writer says that Jesus, this this can be troubling to you if you've never stumbled on this passage before, but when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has been made perfect forever, this is not implying that there was ever a time in, in eternity past where Jesus was less than perfect. What it's saying is that before he lived a life of perfect obedience in the flesh, that which culminated in his death on the cross, it's saying that Jesus' ministry as our high priest was not complete. It was not made perfect. But praise God, and this is a big praise God, you and I live on this side of history. That's good news. Sometimes people tell me, man, I wish I could have been there with the Hebrews when they came out of Egypt. And my very pastoral response is, are you nuts? I I don't want to live then. I want to live now. I want to live in the days of the kingdom, in the days of grace, in the days of an enthroned Christ who is reigning and, and conquering and becoming Lord of all the earth. That's where I want to live. You and I live on this side of history where our great high priest has gone alone into the holiest place in the presence of God on history's final day of atonement. And he's offered not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but his own blood as our mediator. And he's, he was offered his own blood, and he is the sacrifice offered, and he is the altar on which it was offered. And now this sacrificing, uh, the sacrifice offering portion of his ministry is complete. It's done. It's over. It is perfected forever. And now on the basis of that sacrifice, Jesus lives forever. And he's living forever, not twiddling his thumbs. He's making intercession for you and I before the throne where he saves us to the uttermost. May we never forget who our priest is. May we never look upon his offering as fleeting and ineffective as the blood of bulls and goats was. May our hearts be drawn to worship, courage, and to faith. As we cry out to him who forever cries out for us. Amen. Let's all stand. So a victory is won. And Abraham comes with the spoils. He comes with the captives. And out comes the priest. And the priest Melchizedek has bread and wine. And that bread and wine was a symbol of of the fellowship that he wanted to have with Abram. And Jesus prepared a meal on the night before he was crucified, and he said, this is for you. He's saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to be in communion. That's why we use that word. I want to be in communion with you. But more than that, he did it so that that Abram and these these battle-weary warriors would be refreshed. 
And today, Jesus, in the midst of a world filled with sin, where you are not holy and innocent and all those adjectives that we read, Jesus wants you to be refreshed by his resurrection life that is symbolized by these elements and his presence that is here with us when we partake of these elements. And lastly, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine because it was time to celebrate. A battle had been won. Victory had been accomplished. Deliverance had happened. Those who were enslaved and in captive were not anymore. And that's the announcement of these simple elements every week. That there's nobody else that has to be captive who will just believe. Because the victory has been won. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. Let's just affirm together that we remember the sacrifice of our great high priest. Jesus, we thank you that you offered up once for all a sacrifice of your own body that would be for us healing, that would be to us salvation to the uttermost, that would be deliverance from our deepest, darkest places. You brought us salvation through the breaking of your body. And for this we rejoice. As, as we taste of what you have done, as we hold in your hands the, the element that represents your broken body and taste it, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of what was done to purchase us from the world, from the devil, from sin. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's thank God, Jesus, our great high priest, for the blood of his covenant. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the guarantor of a better covenant. That you have done away with covenants of tabernacles and temples and built with hands and and of priesthood who a priest who die and priests who fail and priests who exploit sheep and now you are our great high priest descended into the heavens who has taken your blood and placed it on the mercy seat of god redeeming us from the curse forever we thank you for this jesus A thousand eternities would not give us enough time to thank you for what you've done for us. All right, now we take partake of the cup with glad and joyous hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position. Uh, Once again, I'm returning to the great priestly benediction that God said that He gave it to the priests and he said to say this over the people and thus you will put my name on them. So today I'm putting the name of the Lord on you. Take it with you and do not bear the name of the Lord in vain. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father 
In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, you are dismissed.